Amen. Do we serve an awesome God? Can we give an awesome God an awesome praise in this room? You know, I, I love the line. I love the line in that song that says, you are my redeemer. Sometimes we get lost with what that actually means. But to redeem something means to, to purchase it. You know, the Lord has purchased our salvation. You ever went out to eat with a group of people and you're all looking at each other going, all right, who's, who's paying the bill? You know, especially, you know, if you order a lot, you typically are the one that, you know, should pay the bill or at least most of the bill. See, Jesus does something different. You know, on the cross, he doesn't look to see who else is paying the bill. He purchased it 100%. He didn't ask you to leave the tip, nothing. It has been purchased in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the one we can't come to worship. That is the one we come to adore, not just this Sunday, but every Sunday, not just Sundays, but every single day. We want Jesus Christ to be worshiped and adored. And sometimes worship and adoration doesn't happen through proclamation. Sometimes it just happens as you go through your day and you bring God glory by your actions and you bring God glory by your responses to uh, to hard situations. How about we worship Jesus every day, all day, no matter what? What would life look like in 2018 if that was our goal? That was our New Year's resolution. Psalms 115 says it best. Not unto us, not unto us, but unto you get the glory. My hope and prayer is that we would bring God glory. Well, it's a great Sunday. Good to be gathered in here with you guys. I love Sundays, man. I, I love Sundays because it gives us the opportunity Almost like a huddle, you know, we get to come together for refreshment and for encouragement. And then uh, after service, we get to scatter back out uh, as almost like seeds in Brooklyn. As Matthew 5 will say, salt and light. In the midst of a dark world, we get to scatter and proclaim this Jesus that we all came together to worship and adore. So I'm excited to be here with you guys and see your uh, beautiful faces uh, before we dive into the Word of God, I, I just quickly wanted to address something that I typically don't address in this space. I don't take pulpit time to address uh, uh, political issues. I, I usually just want to get right into the Word of God. Uh, but there were some comments that were made this week by uh, the president. And uh, I, I think it's important, you know, sometimes the church can gloss over this stuff and just be like, that's politics, you know, I, we're not going to address it. Uh, but, you know, the comments that were made weren't just a political issue. They were a gospel issue. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the comments that were made, if you don't know what comments were made, I encourage you to, you know, Google and find out what, uh, if you don't know, Google and find out what was said. But, um, you know, this is personal, but it's also pastoral for me. It's personal in the sense, you know, the attacks to me, the verbal attacks were against, uh, were against Haiti and against Africans and uh, that's hurtful for me. My boys, uh, two, both of my boys, their godfather is a Haitian. And uh, deep relationship, culturally different, but deep relationship. We go deep uh, to where we would consider him family. Uh, so that's on the personal tip. On a pastoral tip, there is really five responsibilities I have as your pastor, and that is to, to lead, to feed, to care, to know, and the fifth one is to protect. And I take that very, very serious. And we have members in this church that are Haitian. We have members in this church that are of African descent. And I can promise you now, there's a few things that I will let slide, but I will not let slide when there is an attack against our people. So I just want to go on record and publicly say that I think the comments this week by the president were irresponsible. They were ignorant. But let me just go ahead and, and be as 
bold as possible. They were racist. And we cannot tolerate that type of racism. We can, we'll let, you know, he, he's the president. He's not the, the pastor of the United States. So I'll let some character issues and some moralistic issues fly that I won't address on a Sunday morning. But when you attack a group of people just based on their ethnicity or based on the country they come from, that is an offense. And it is absolutely racist. So our position as a church is we, are, we stand against racism. And, and, you know, we have a unique opportunity here in Bed-Stuy. We are sitting in this room, a diverse church, with all different types of ethnicities that come together. And the common thread we have is Jesus Christ. Outside of Jesus, we have nothing else in common. But Jesus brings that, that common thread for all of us, and we protect each other because we're brothers and sisters. Well, I'm excited and encouraged to preach the word, so grab your Bibles and your devices. Meet me in Ecclesiastes where we're going to spend our time this morning. Uh, as you turn there, let me just go ahead and put my cards on the table real early. Uh, I am an introvert by nature. Um, if you give me the choice, I love people. Uh, so, you know, being an introvert doesn't mean I hate people. I just love being by myself a little bit more. And I have to force myself sometimes to be, you know, uh, amongst a, a body of people, a, a body of believers. And, you know, if you give me the choice, I would rather be home in my pajamas watching movies with the kids in, in Thai or watching the boys fight over uh, Call of Duty. Um, and large crowds tend to give me a, sh- a sense of strength, but at the same time, simultaneously has the ability to zap my strength at the same You ever did that? You ever been around a group of people and you, you weren't even doing anything? You just kind of were just hanging out and talking and talking. By the time you get in the car, you are exhausted that's the feeling I feel. So I want to put my cards on the table this morning that I'm not preaching the, the passage that we're going to be in in Ecclesiastes 4. I'm not preaching this as an expert. In fact, let me just be honest with you. There's no text I've ever preached as an expert. One of my mentors told me uh, that if you are preaching on areas that you don't struggle with yourself, you're preaching too low. The bar is set way too low. Uh, so oftentimes when I'm coming in here and preaching to you, I'm encouraging my own self. And so this is a text that I, I am not an expert on. Rather, I'm someone growing uh, in the bars that Solomon is going to be dropping in the next few verses. Now, I'm trying to grow and I'm trying. I'm with you. I am absolutely being convicted by uh, the text before us. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a good text that I think we can gain a lot from. Why don't you pick me up in Ecclesiastes 4, verse number 9. Here's the word of the Lord. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. You should underline that pronouncement of a curse there. And another not to lift him up. Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I want to preach this morning from the topic entitled, Isolation is not an option. Isolation is not an option. Let us look to the Lord. Uh, Father, this morning we come before you um, with Psalms 119, verse 105 on our minds, that your, lamp, your word is a lamp unto our feet. And it is a light unto our path. And Lord, today, this afternoon, we need our paths illuminated with your word. Uh, Lord, your word has the ability to correct us and to encourage us at the same time, which is unique. And Lord, I just pray that we would walk out of here and those that are are doing the text well, I pray we'd walk out, say amen. 
Uh, but for, for the majority of us in here that struggle with community, struggle with vulnerability, struggle with being honest and open with people, Father, would you help us to walk out of here and genuinely say, ouch. Would you correct us today? Help us to see the deep need for community and help us to see the dangers of isolation. Pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified today. Every single week we gather here pleading at the foot of the cross for Jesus to be glorified. And today is no exception. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Pray that, pray that Jesus would be glorified in our time and that he would be edified. It's in Christ's name we give glory. Amen. Why don't you look at your neighbor and just say isolation is not an option. Do, do me one step further. Why don't you look across the room and find somebody you haven't seen in a while and say, yeah, you, isolation is not an option. I pray you feel that conviction sit on you right there. In a recent article I read uh, in Christianity Today, the article was talking about the dangers in isolation, but it was also talking about the importance of community. And when I was looking at this article, reading this article, there were several stats that were quoted. And these statistics, I think, are good for us today. Here's what I found. 2006, a study of 3,000 women with breast cancer found that those with a large network of friends were four times more likely to survive due to social connections. Another study found that 50-year-old men with active friendships are less likely to have heart attacks than solitary men. A study involving almost 3,000 Americans found that people with close friendships are less likely to die young. And what we can conclude from these stats, this isn't even just believers, this is just people. What we can conclude from these stats is that we were not created to be in isolation. We were not created to be lone rangers, and that's particularly true for believers. Christ never died, and I've said, said this often here, Christ never died for you to accept him to be a lone ranger. He never created you to believe in him, and then you be out here on your own, and then the community's over here. By the way, this is where we typically fall into sin, and most of us in this room can attest to that. Over here is where you find accountability and protection. This is where you're known. This is where you don't get to surf on Facebook and do whatever you want and be on whatever websites. This is where people grab your phone and say, let me see what you were on last night. What, who, whose house were you at last night? That, like That's where this happens. Over here, you don't have that. And so what we'll see, even with these stats, is that isolation is, is dangerous. Isolation, solitary confinement is what we do. It's a punishment. It's a punishment when you cannot behave in community, and then you get into jail and still can't behave. They put you in isolation. They put you in solitary confinement. And so isolation, being by yourself, individualism is absolutely anti-scripture. There's a Jewish proverb that says a man... Without a companion is like a right hand without a left. You absolutely can go through life with only one hand, but even someone that goes through life with only one hand will tell you that it's more, it's harder to go through life with one hand. You ever try to wash just one hand? It's hard to do, but that's what it's like for us to be in isolation on, and on our own. But here's what I know. Culture pushes against this idea of being vulnerable in community. And culture, culture actually pushes us towards individualism. And it shows up in the idioms we choose to say. We say stuff like, too many cooks in the kitchen spoil the stew. But as I'm getting older, I'm learning that uh, I would rather have 
spoiled stew with good friends around that can hold me accountable than good stew when I'm by myself. And culture often pushes hard on individualism, grind harder, do more, be by yourself, do you. But the reality is the believer was never designed to be like that. And in our text today, Solomon is going to debunk the idea of individualism. And he's going to get at us through our hearts. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll note that it comes directly after the book of Proverbs. Solomon wrote Proverbs and Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiastes is often known as the sad sequel. And it's known as the sad sequel because in Proverbs, like Solomon is, I mean, he's given wise sayings and he's given them to his children. But when you get to the book of Ecclesiastes, most people will suggest that Solomon is lamenting over the fact that he didn't take his own advice in the previous book. And so this is what you would call the sad sequel. And what we'll find in our text this afternoon is that Solomon realizes the danger in being isolated. And he's going to get at us today. Here's what Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires and he breaks out against all sound judgment. Isolation from others is selfish. Isolation from others is foolish. But more importantly, isolation from others is unbiblical. Bible never designed us to be isolated. In our text today, Solomon is going to work through four reasons why two are better than one. Here's the four reasons. You can write them down, and we're going to work through each one of them. Two are better than one while you are working. He's going to show us that two are better than one when you fall down. He's going to show us that two are better than one when you are in the cold. And finally, he's going to show us that two are better than one when you are in a fight. Let's consider each one of these first. Two are better than one when you are working. Look at the the, the language here in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have good reward. Circle this word for their toil. This word toil here. Uh, speaks of hard work or diligent labor. This, does not, this is not a picture of a person sitting in a cubicle, goofing off, doing insta-story boomerangs. That's not what toil is showing us here. Toil, toil really is showing us this is a person that is living in an agrarian culture where he has to grow his food. And, you know, one of the things that happens with farmers in agrarian cultures is you don't have to push a farmer to work. Because he realizes if he doesn't sow this season, the next season is not going to be anything to eat. And so his push, you don't have to probe him. You don't have to push him. You don't have to say, get up. You're not going to work. No, I'm calling out sick today. No, he's going to go into the field and he's going to work. And the reason he's going to do that is because he realizes if he doesn't, he's not going to provide for his family. When I was raising my support, I did a two-year residency before planting this church and uh, the residency, two-year residency, was under the leadership of my, my spiritual father and pastor, Dr. Eric Mason. And, he, you know, one of the things that was good for my heart was he said, you got to get out there and raise your own support. You got to raise your own salary. You got to provide for your family. So I went around and talked to people about the vision of the church and talked to people about what our hopes and our dreams were uh, to plant a church here in Bed-Stuy and asked them for, for money to resource that for two years. And, you know, it became discouraging after a while. And one day I sat across from him and he said, grab your phone. I grabbed my phone and he says, pull up a picture of your family. I pull up a picture of my family and then it was just silence in the room. It felt real awkward. I felt like the room was getting smaller. And I'm like, what is, like, is he going to say something? He said, no, 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 stare at the picture. 
I'm looking at the picture, and he says, if you don't provide for that family, that family won't eat. Nothing motivates you more than knowing that you have to provide for your children and your wife. And that's what we see in the text. We see a sense of toil, a sense of work. And we have bad, you know, one of the assumptions made in the text is that we're all supposed to work. But often we think of work as a consequence for the fall. We think that Adam and Eve, you know, work is a punishment for the fall. Now, there are some, you know, there, there are some punishments. Child laboring is one of them, working to the sweat of your brow. Nevertheless, work was instituted before Adam and Eve fell. Adam and Eve didn't fall until Genesis 3, but Genesis 2, he said, put Adam in the garden and let him work. In other words, work is a part of the creative order. So we shouldn't push against work. Work is unavoidable and it is inescapable. All of us must grind at some point. But here's the affirmation in the text. Two are better than one when you work. And working alone is not helpful. The late novelist Alex Haley, who wrote the book Roots in 1976, he had a picture in his office of a turtle sitting on a fence. And he would often look at that uh, that picture, when he started to feel himself and, you know, as my pastor would say, smell his own armpit juice, when he would look at that picture, he would realize, you know, a turtle doesn't get on the fence by itself. A turtle, if you ever see a turtle on the fence, you know it had help getting up there. And so he would look at this picture to motivate him. And most successful people will tell you they do not get to a place of success by individual grind. Most people get to a place of success because they had the help of somebody else. And so what Solomon tells us today is that two are better than one when you work. But let me pastorally warn you of danger as well. One of us, some of us in this room could read that text and simply walk away and say, okay, I just got to find somebody to work with. I got to find a partner to work with. But let me also warn you of the danger of picking the wrong people. Let me also warn you of the danger of picking people based on ill motives. Some of us, just to say we're fulfilling Scripture, we'll just pick anybody. Scripture even warns us against that. Remember in Genesis 11, when after the flood happened, God said, you know, go and replenish the earth. And they were supposed to spread abroad, but they decided to stay together. And in Genesis 11, they said, we're going to build a skyscraper. We're going to work together. We're going to fulfill this text, work together, and build a skyscraper that reaches up to heaven. One of the things I love about that, that verse is, you know, that, that text is that even though they were building this skyscraper to reach heaven, God, and how big he is, decides that he still has to come down and confuse the language and break up their hard work together. And so basically what I'm saying is there is some work you can do with other people that is against the will of God. And you have to also be careful of that. Don't just fulfill this text and say, I got to work with somebody. No, be wise. Be discerning. There are some people that you should not work with. There are some reasons why you should not work with people. But even in that story of Genesis 11, verse 6, God says, this is what he says. He says that nothing is impossible to them because they work together. In other words, even with wrong motives, you can accomplish more with other people. How much more can we accomplish with people that are like-minded in the things of God that are working towards the will of God? We should be praying for that. And so what Solomon pushes us towards this morning is working, or this afternoon is working with other like-minded people. And he says it this way, two are better than one when you go to work. 
Secondly, two are better than one when you fall down. Why don't you pick me back up in verse number 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Verse 10 addresses something that all of us in this room have done before, and that's falling. And most of us, you know, you never fall alone, right? You always got to fall in front of company, you know, in public. I, I was going in my, my, my job when I worked at Corporate America before planting the church. I pulled into a local Starbucks, got me, you know, a, a, a large coffee. I didn't get the small one. And, you know, I'm feeling good. It's sunny outside. I grabbed me a coffee. You know, I, I have my briefcase and I'm walking into the office. I got my suit on. I'm feeling nice. As soon as I walk in, nothing was in front of me. My feet just kind of stumbled together. I looked like Kim Burrell when she fell. Y'all don't even know. Y'all don't even know Kim Burrell. And I fell over. I, I repent. I'm sorry. I fell, I fell over. The coffee went in the air. It was so dramatic and like slow motion splattered all over me. The security guard came over and helped me, and the guy that was the construction worker outside came in to help me. I felt like my ribs were, like, twisted to the other side. And, you know, in those moments, all of us are embarrassed, but here's the reality. I didn't fall because I lacked experience in walking. I walked all my life. I mean, I, I, I'm very experienced. I have tenure in walking. I know how to walk. I know how to put one foot in front of the other. But here's what I found out. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. All of, us, all of us in this room have fallen before. And there's a strong possibility in this room, you know, because I think if, we, if we're picking up the text right, it's not talking about a physical fall. Spiritual fall. And it doesn't matter how spiritual you are. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord. It doesn't matter if you got up at 5 o'clock this morning. It doesn't matter, you know, to pray. It doesn't matter if you're still fasting from two weeks ago. It, none of that matters. All of us in this room, none of us are exempt from following, and all of us has a possibility of walking out of here right now and spiritually falling flat on our face. And some of you in 2017, you spent 2017 falling in isolation, falling with no one else around. And, you know, there, there, there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, that says it this way, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed unless he falls. The person that thinks he is exempt from falling is the person that is a leading candidate for falling. When you think you're not going to fall, that's the person that typically falls straight on their face. But the text doesn't just push us towards falling. It says, woe to him who falls alone. Notice the text doesn't say don't fall. The text says the danger is when you're falling and you're isolated. You're falling and you're not around the body. In the text, it's not just a slip. It's not just a stumble. He didn't just trip up on his feet. In the text, this is a total collapse. Because notice the person that fell in the text needs somebody else to help him up. And there is some spiritual falling that some of you have done that you cannot get up on your own. There are some enemies that you have to fight that you cannot fight on your own. Let me go this way. There's some habits in this room that you cannot break. You need somebody else. Most of us suffer in silence because we don't want to be embarrassed. No, you need to embarrass yourself. You know, some of you in 2017 said, you know what? This is what I'm going to do in 2018. I'm cutting off everybody. You know, I've seen the Facebook posts. <laughs> everybody is cut off. You know how unwise that is? 
You push against what the text is saying. Listen, if you are living in isolation, there's only a matter of time until you fall. It just, it just is. And so Solomon says to us this morning, he says, no, woe to you when you fall and you fall all by yourself. Here's some Bible, Galatians 6, chapter, uh, verse number 1 says it this way, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. In other words, there's a spiritual falling that happens that you need somebody else to restore you. But the text doesn't just say that somebody should restore you. It tells you who should do it. You who are spiritual. Problem is we got all carnal friends. We got all friends that don't know Jesus. You know, we got friends that, you know, don't walk with the Lord. And typically what happens with our friendships is, you know, we, we usually put on more carnality and when we're around our friends so that they're comfortable. But we don't cause them to put on more Jesus. And in 2018, you have no time for putting on carnality and then coming in, a, you know, amongst the believers on Sunday and waving your hand like everything's okay. Everything's not okay. You need people in your life that will challenge you. You need people in your life that will push you. Y'all know I push this vulnerability to the point where, you, you know, you grab that phone and, you know, somebody says, look at this picture, but don't swipe to the right. Don't swipe to the left because I don't know what pictures you... See, you need, you need people in your life that can grab the phone without any conviction and just swipe away. See, we don't, we don't like that, that level of vulnerability. You need people in your life that know your finances and say, you know what, because I'm not doing it, but you need people in your life that say, how much have you been given to the Lord? Because that shows us your priority. How much have you invested in yourself and in your own personal grind? How much have you given to the things of God? That's what we need. We need that level of accountability. And so Solomon says it this way. He says, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who falls alone. There's not another to lift him up. Do you pick, did you pick up the, the, the prophetic language, woe to him? See, in the scriptures, whenever the Bible wants to bless somebody, God says, blessed is the man. But when he wants to pronounce a curse, he says, woe unto that man. Which is confusing because Ecclesiastes is, is not a book of prophecy, it's poetry. But yet Solomon deems that it's so important for us to not live in isolation that he uses prophetic terminology and pronounces a curse over the one that wants to live in isolation and falls in isolation. Millennials, you know, one of the things I know about you millennials, man, I, I love y'all. You know, I just want to put that out there right now. I love, you know, our church is 92% millennial. I don't know how I became like the old guy in the, in the room. But our church is fairly young. But here's what I know about millennials. Millennials love isolation. Millennials do not want people in their business. But they're the same ones that complain about the church and complain about the community. Like you're living out here complaining about, like you're not even in community complaining. Like I'll take your complaint more serious if you are part. But when you're all isolated, but yet you want to complain. You know, when people come to me and they say, you know, I fell in a hardship. Or I fell in, you know, into sin and, and, you know, I don't have accountability. I ask them two questions every, like clockwork, two questions. Who are you in DNA with? What small group do you go to? I ask that because that is where we wrestle. That is where we fall. You should be able to sit across from another sister and confess your sin. You should be able to sit across from another brother and say, I need you to hold me accountable. 
But we don't like that level of accountability, so we don't come to anything. We show up on Sunday and say, nobody was there when I failed, but where were you? We need you apart. And I'm not saying this to push numbers here. I'm saying it to push your soul. You, because that, that's where spiritual growth happens. It happens amongst believers. Two are better than one while you are working. Two are better than one when you fall. Third, we're going to see that two are better than one when you are in the cold. Pick me back up in verse number 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? If the picture that was painted for us in verse number 10 was a picture of someone falling, verse number 11 is a picture of someone freezing. And what we typically do with this verse is we apply it straight to marriage. I've heard this verse quoted at weddings, and I'm not against it. It's actually a secondary application. It is not the primary application. The reason I'm saying that is because nowhere in this passage do you see marriage talked about. I'll go so far as to say nowhere in the chapter do you see marriage talked about. And so it's a cute saying to put in a, a wedding, but the reality is this is talking about regular life with regular people, with relationships. It tells us, woe to you if you, you know, fall amongst the elements and it's freezing cold. How can you survive? What we see here is a picture of a man traveling on a road and as he's traveling on the road, night starts to fall and the temperatures start to drop. He, there either is no, no, uh, no inn close to him that he could sleep in or maybe there is and there's no room for me. So he has to sleep exposed in the elements. And really what the text is suggesting to us is if you fall when temperatures start to drop, if you're alone, you'll freeze to death. It doesn't matter that you got a tunic. It does not matter that you got a cloak. If you are isolated by yourself, you will freeze. This has less to do with cold temperatures and more to do with survival. Some of you cannot survive without the help of somebody else. You need somebody else. There's, there's a, a show I used to watch on National Geographic. Uh, it's called I Should Be Dead. I don't know if you guys remember that show. I don't know if they still show it or not. Uh, but in that show, they would reenact situations that people legitimately were in. And so they would take a scenario and they would reenact the whole thing. And, you know, people were put into some extreme conditions. This one episode I was watching, these two men were hiking and they wandered off the trail and they got lost. And, you know, night started to fall. The temperature started to drop. They had hoodies on. They had coats on. They didn't have anything warm to drink. And so when the night fell, in order to survive, they couldn't just use the, the covering that they had. They actually had to huddle up with each other and exchange body heat. That is what our text is saying. Our text is showing us that when it's cold outside, when the temperatures drop in your life, you need somebody else to survive. And the problem with all of us in this room is when it's warm out, we don't think about that. When it's warm, we're like, I'm good. But can I promise everybody in this room that the temperatures in your life will drop and you will need the help of somebody else, not just to freeze, but you will need the help of somebody else in order to survive. There's some elements that you cannot survive on your own. And here's what I know. Some of you walked in here freezing already. I mean, literally freezing because it is cold outside. But somebody walked in here today spiritually freezing. You are cold to the things of God. And in order to warm back up, you need another brother. You need another sister. And that's gender on gender. That, that ain't brother. Don't go to a girl like, yo, I just want to cuddle up, baby. <laughs> You look a little cold, I want to warm you up. 
Listen, straight rebuke if that's, if that's your, your motives. Texas showing us gender on gender. You need a brother you can warm up with. Pastor, in 2017, I cut all my people off like I just did. Like, I don't have time for people. Well, you're going to freeze. And you need the help of somebody else. So two are better than one when you are working. Two are better than one when you fall down. Two are better than one when you are in the cold. Last, two are better than one when you are in a fight. Look at verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Once again, the picture is being played out of a man traveling on a road, but this time it's not the freezing temperature that will kill him. It's an attacker that will kill him. He falls amongst somebody that may be trying to rob him. But what the text is saying is one-on-one, you might prevail against him, but two people against the attacker removes the doubt. It's so practical. Like, there's nothing deep about the text. It's simply saying when there's two people in a fight versus one, you are more likely to overcome him. When I was in junior high, I... Uh, was in gym, and me and another guy started to get into a verbal altercation. It wasn't nothing serious. But we wasn't, it wasn't physical. It was just we were exchanging words, and it was getting heated. And we're playing basketball. That's kind of what you do. But he must have felt disrespected in something I said. And so we got back in the locker room, and I realized, you know, he wanted to fight me. And so he's standing at, the, you know, at, at my locker, you know, all flexing and, and ready. You know, I couldn't throw the hands then. I could throw my hands now. So don't try me. But back then, I was a little scared. I was like, oh, my God, what's about to happen? Then, you know, then he does something crazy. He takes off his shirt, and he was like, cut all up. And I'm like, bro, we in the seventh grade. Where you, where you get muscles from? Like, I'm so underdeveloped. I was a skinny little thing, and fear came over me like that. But then something great happened. My boys all stood up and said, yo, we got a, we got a problem? The dude automatically backed down. I'm like, yeah, you, you better put that shirt back on. I was scared, but I was like, you better put that back on. He puts his shirt on and he walks away. But, you know, he didn't walk away because I flexed back. He didn't walk away because I took my shirt off. In fact, he would have he jumped all over me. He walked away because my boy stood up for the fight. And spiritually, what you need is when you, because what we think is that, We think Solomon is simply talking about physical fighting. Your greatest enemy is not your hater. Your greatest enemy is not the person that you are going back and forth with on Facebook and your coworker or that family member that is hating on you. That's not your greatest enemy. Your greatest enemy is the devil himself. And when you are in a fight, you need somebody else that is just as spiritual to help you fight. Somebody that'll pull you inside and say, wait a second, what's happening in your life? Let's pray. Somebody that'll pull you inside and say, wait, tell me what's going on. Let's fast. Let's turn our plates down so we can get with the Lord so we can defeat this enemy. Can we be real in here? You are not stronger than the enemy outside of Jesus. The enemy will crush you. That's why the Bible says that he seeks to destroy, to kill, to steal and destroy. But for some reason, we think that he just wants to mess with us. He just wants to mangle. No, he wants to destroy you. He wants to devour you. He roams around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And outside of Jesus Christ and the help of his body, you will be overtaken. Do not think you are strong enough to stand against him. Here's some Bible. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12 says this. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here it is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers in this present darkness, against spiritual forces and evil in heavenly places. Your greatest enemy, the greatest fight you can fight is a demonic fight against the demons that want to devour you. That's the greatest fight you can be in. And if that's the greatest fight, why do we isolate ourselves and fight alone? You have the help of brothers and sisters. And again, there's some battles you just can't win alone, some habits you can't break alone. Like, I, I want to be real. I know the room. I, I, I don't want you to think I'm a naive pastor. Some of you are addicted to porn. You are addicted to drinking. You are addicted to social media because sometimes we think porn and, and drinking is the bad. Some of you are addicted to social media. You are addicted to greed and spending money on your own self. Some of you in this room are so addicted that you cannot break the habit by yourself. What you need is somebody else in the battle. You need somebody else in the ring with you. But why do we want to fight isolated from the community? Now, verse 12 will intensify. The whole time we've been seeing two are better than one. Two are better than one. Two are better than one. He gets to verse 12 and he shows us that three is even better than two. Look at verse 12. It says, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Here's three. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. One can withstand but so much weight. Two can withstand a little bit more weight. But three, a threefold cord is not easily broken. In other words, you need a plethora of people around you that will be in the ring with you. You need a plethora of people around you that when you fall, you have others that will help you up. You need others around you that when you get cold, you can all huddle up together. And sometimes this threefold cord doesn't necessarily mean you and another individual and another. It might mean you, another individual, and Jesus Christ. And that's the best threefold cord. When you can't find nobody else, you can go to Jesus Christ and find comfort and solace. Now, at the risk of contradicting the entire sermon, there is one time that one is better than two. Only one I could think of. And that is when it comes to matters of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus and another God is not, the, that's not going to work. You need Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus doesn't sit in, you know, comparison with other gods. He sits alone. Faith in Jesus by himself is what you need. I used to go to a barbershop in Philly, and you know, the guy used to cut my hair. He was nice with the clippers, but he smoked weed, and he took long breaks in the middle, cut my fade. He'd stop and go outside on Cecil B and start smoking. I'm watching him like, what is going on? I want to cut my own hair. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, but you know, one of the things, he, he was very flaky. So I would pick up, you know, when I, when I would get my hair cut, I talked to him about the things of God and share with him the gospel. And he said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then I would sit down and wait for my haircut, and the person that he's cutting is a Muslim. He'd be like, yeah, I'm a Muslim. I'd be like, how can you be a Muslim and a Christian at the same time? The matter, you know, when it comes to Jesus, they're on two different spectrums. I don't know if you realize that, but, you know, he would often, what he was doing was he was trying to get in, hev in heaven without, like, he didn't want to miss it on a technicality. He covered all bases. If, if, if being a Muslim would get me there, I'm going to say I'm a Muslim. But if get Christianity, you know, I'll, I'm going to say I trust in Jesus. But, you know, the believer that has trusted in the work of Christ, we believe in Christ by faith alone, through grace alone, and Jesus Christ alone. He is exclusive. Jesus is the one 
that is the intersection between earth and heaven. Jesus is the one that has crushed the beef between you and God. And I know how it works in here. We think we have no beef with God outside of Jesus. But let me promise you in this room that apart from Jesus, you and God ain't cool. Y'all ain't all right. You need Jesus as a mediator. Not only the one that prays for you, but the one that dies for your sin. Because if he doesn't die for your sin, you got to die for your own sin. And so the cross, that bloody cross, we get to trust in Jesus. And we are accepted because the work of the cross. But those of you that have not trusted in him, like you can't get to the place where you're like two are better than one if you haven't trusted Jesus. You need Jesus Christ today. And that is the only occasion I can think of where one is better than two. Jesus is exclusive. In fact, this is what he says in John 14, verse number six, as I land the plane. He says this, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I am a way. He doesn't say, I am a truth. No, he is exclusive. He is the only truth. He is the only way. Oftentimes, you know, when it comes to other gods, we'll profess that I only believe in Jesus, but our actions show differently. We have so many other things as God. Like money makes a bad God. It just does. Your works, trying to get into heaven based on your own merit is a bad God. You need Jesus Christ, again, by grace alone. Every head bowed and every eye closed. When it comes to this plethora of friends that I'm referring to, you know, you, if you think about a snowflake, you can keep your head bowed, but when a snowflake falls in your hand, it melts quickly. It's easy. It's flaky. It's, you know, it doesn't, doesn't survive. It doesn't last long. But if you get enough snowflakes together, it'll shut the city down. What you need in your life is more people, more accountability. You need more people that are checking on you, more people that are challenging you. We are unchecked in this room. We go through life and we do it in such a way that isolation becomes normal. But I pray that in 2018, isolation would not be normal. Pray that you would look back at your life and realize that the moments of weakness and the moments you fell were moments where you were disconnected from the body. You were disconnected from your girl and disconnected from your boy. You need the help of others. Father, forgive us in this room. Many of us in this room walked in in isolation. Many of us in this room are freezing. We have fallen. But help us to repent today. Because we need, we need others, Lord. Yes, we can confess our sins to you, and you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from righteousness. Lord, we also need to tell others so that we can stay out of the sin. We need to tell others. We need to out ourselves. I pray for a community here at Epiphany that are filled with young ladies that realize that they are godly women. And their bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made for you. And that the accountability that we talk about is not because, it's not because we just think that it's a good idea to have people in our life. But help us to get to the point where we realize that we need people to genuinely offend us. Offend us to love you more. We need brothers in our life. So many brothers are just so comfortable. 
comfortable in isolation. But Father, would you get at us this afternoon for your glory. We desire to be godly men. We desire to be godly young ladies. And we realize, Lord, that that's worked out best through the accountability of others. Thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for your word. May we be doers of this word, not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.